Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, we have some big, big shows coming up in February. On February 9th, we are in North Carolina. In the Chapel Hill area at the Art Center there, we have Jane Borden, finally having Jane on the show. Brilliant author. We have Josh Gondelman, uh, the at the Seinfeld Twitter, t- t- Seinfeld Today Twitter thingy they got there on the interwebs. And we have some surprise guests, too. So North Carolina, come see us on February 9th. Now, on February 2nd, we are in San Francisco for the big sketch fest there once again. Greg Proops, Glenn Wool, Chris Garcia, Caitlin Gill, Kamel Nanjiani. Holy shit! That is going to be an amazing show. Whenever you want to learn about what's going on with Risk, as far as our live shows go, go to risk-show.com slash tour. Finally, postage rates are changing again, which means the post office is about to become even more crowded. That's why we... At Risk and the Story Studio, use Stamps.com. We can buy and print official U.S. postage right from our desks using our own computer and printers. Stamps.com always updates the postage rates for you automatically. And unlike those postage meter companies, Stamps.com never charges a fee to do it. So you always get the exact postage you need. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Now, right now, we have a special offer. When you use our promo code RISK, it's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. Remember, you'll be helping us when you do that. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now, here's the show.
Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Funk Ferret behind me now. So just last weekend, Risk went to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, we'd never been to Charleston. I'd never been to the South to perform before at all. And, you know, people say that Folks in the South are more closed-minded. I didn't know how the show was going to go over there. I just didn't know. And we were in this huge auditorium. The first people I see entering are elderly. <laughs> they look like these grumpy elderly people in their 70s, especially this one couple sat in the very front row. And I thought, oh, my God, because I knew we had our typical x-rated you know crime-filled stories coming for the evening and i thought oh my god these people are not going to be able to take this so i didn't look at them i did not make eye contact with these people throughout the whole show but the crowd as you'll be able to hear was just delightful and then when the entire audience had filed out and you know we're all packed up and i'm ready to leave i walk out on stage and that old couple is still sitting there in the front row they were waiting the old lady nudged her husband. She's like, there he is, there he is. And their eyes were all bright. <laughs> the husband looked at me. He held both his palms to his heart. And he said, we just want to thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. <laughs> I was so moved by that. The city of Charleston could not have been more beautiful and more receptive to our two risk shows down there. Uh, we cannot wait to get back. Uh, it's just great to see that no matter how, I don't know, filthy or disgraceful some of the stories on this show can seem at times, a lot of people find that it's a good thing. And we have a lot of good things to share with you from our time in Charleston. Now, I have a little warning. The second show was almost completely lost. Uh, the recording, we had some malfunctions. We're going to have everyone who performed that night back on again as soon as possible. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the hilarious Vic Henley, a performer from down there originally. Uh, but before that... My dear friend, Mr. Michael Ian Black, uh, who actually ended the shows down there. But what the hell? We're going to take things out of order here with a story we call The Pleased. I was watching the, uh, the Lance Armstrong interview with Oprah yesterday. And, first of all, maybe I'm naive. I still don't think he doped. <laughs> but I was watching that interview and thinking to myself, like I think most people were thinking to themselves, you know, that guy's a fucking scumbag. Because he is. He's just a scummy guy. Uh, and he was talking about the idea of winning at any cost. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, I would never do that. 
And then, of course, upon reflecting on that, I'm like, oh, I've done that. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you the story of me doing that. It, it, it largely, almost exclusively, takes place in high school. And I hated high school. Uh, everybody hated high school. You hated high school. I know you did. Uh, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Because this event is for cool people. <laughs> so because I hated high school, I wanted to rebel. You know, the way you do when you're in high school. And the only way that I could think to rebel was to start a band. You know, that seemed like a good rebellious thing to do. And the way you start a band in high school is you go, all right, who plays guitar? Jeff plays guitar. Jeff's in the band. John plays drums. He's in the band. And Tim plays bass. He's in the band. And I don't play anything, so I'll sing. And I'm in the band. So it was really me and Tim. It was, it was our sort of idea. And Tim is one of these guys that I have surrounded myself with periodically in my life. And I always feel bad about myself when I do because Tim was really cool and really good looking and in really good shape and really punk rock. And I would just turn invisible when I was next to Tim. Nobody could see me when I was with Tim because all attention was on him. But I liked him. I liked being with him. He was cool. He was teaching me how to be cool. And he had the punk rock thing in a way that I didn't. And the first thing you do when you start a band is you think of a name. And because we were going to be a punk rock band, you know, we needed a punk rock name. And there were good examples to choose from at that time. And we could have gone in that direction. We could have gone offensive. We could have gone disgusting like the Dead Kennedys, or the Dayglow Abortions, or Millions of Dead Cops, all of which were real bands at that time. But we didn't go offensive. We didn't go disgusting. We went subtle. <laughs> this is the name that I chose for our band. The Pleased. Do you get it? Do you get the irony? Because we weren't pleased. We were pissed off. And do you know what we were pissed off at? Society, motherfuckers. Society. So now that we had the name, we had to start figuring out how to be a band and had to learn songs and we practiced at John the drummer's house. John's drums were set up in, in the living room of his house. And you would think like that would be a real eyesore in a house. But if your parents are hoarders, then you don't even really notice the drums. They just kind of disappear. 
So it made it very convenient for us to practice there and store our gear there because nobody even noticed that we were there. And our first show was a battle of the bands at a local high school. And we went there and we won. We played Melt With You by Modern English, but punk rock. And when you do that, man, that is a real panty throw right there. <laughs> Panties flying through space every time I sang that song. Our second show was at the winter party at our high school. We were scheduled to play for two hours. We knew five songs. And we played those songs. And we took it very seriously. It was the only thing in my high school life that was giving me any joy at all. And I felt like I belonged to something. It felt cool. It felt, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, alive, unlike the rest of my life, which did not feel that way at that time. And it was a very serious enterprise and a serious undertaking. And we started writing our own songs. And then once you do that, you think, well, we have to record an album. So we decided to do that. And back then, you couldn't just hook up your computer and play your instruments and have an album. You had to go to a proper recording studio. But it was, it was going to cost us like $10,000 to do that. And obviously, none of us had that money. But fortunately for us, John's dad uh, was affiliated with the mafia. So he just had <laughs> cash in his bedroom drawer that John knew about. So John stole $10,000 from his mafia-connected father. And we took that to the recording studio and recorded our demo. Now, if there were any justice in the world, the end of that story would be the mob would come and find us, but I don't think they ever found out because they didn't. So we took the album around and we would drive to record companies. Literally, we would drive, there was a record company called Metal Force Records in New Jersey and we would just take our cassette there and go, will you please listen to this and give us a record deal? And they said, we'll listen to it. And we never heard from them. <laughs> but right next door to New Jersey where I grew up, of course, is New York City. And in New York City is the uh, spiritual home of punk rock and roll, no longer there, called CBGB's. And we thought to ourselves, well, once you've played CBGB's, you've made it. But there's no possible way we could play CBGB's because that's where real bands play, professional bands. As it happens, you can play CBGB's whenever you want. Because on Monday nights, they have something called audition night. And what you do is, you call CBGB's and you say, I'd like to audition. And they say, fine, bring a lot of people 
That way, you'll be more likely to pass the audition. Great. We're scheduled for three weeks from then. We've got our demo. We've got our band. And we're noticing now, as we're getting more professional, that Tim, our bass player, who is really the most punk rock of all of us, really doesn't know how to play the bass. He's not, a good, he's just not a good bass player, even a little bit, and gets mad when you point out to him that he doesn't know how to play the bass. But he's so punk rock. Need I remind you that Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols also played the bass, also didn't play the bass. But we all know Sid Vicious. And Tim informed our entire look for the band, you know. And this is post-Ramones, pre-Nirvana. So punk had kind of died out in the cultural landscape and there was nobody really doing this except for a few hardcore bands out there. And so we didn't really know how to look. So we, we kind of settled on trying to look as much like Ducky from Pretty in Pink as we could. <laughs> Seemed like the closest to a punk rock icon that we could find and that was less punk rock and more just kind of accessorizing is really what it was. Just sort of pajama pants and buttons and Madonna bracelets basically is what we were wearing. But somehow Tim pulled it off. Tim just looked tough and, and angry. But he couldn't play his instrument. And this was becoming a problem. I don't know why it was becoming a problem, except that we decided it was becoming a problem. The CB show comes, we bring all of our fans to CBs. We get vans and we drive them to New York City, uh, every single fan we have. So easily seven people. <laughs> show up at four o'clock in the afternoon for a five o'clock show on a Monday afternoon. That's when punk rock really burns, you know, that's when it really comes alive. Walk in there, it was a tiny little place, it was like a little cavern, black, bumper stickers all over the walls, gum, stage was falling apart, you know, it was disgusting, and, and you would hear that sound, you know, followed by cursing and the sound of fists connecting with flesh and I loved it I mean it was amazing it was amazing to be there in that space and there was a band playing when we walked in and we kind of sauntered through you know 16 years old and 85 pounds you know just fuck you you know walking in and got my pajama pants on and my beret you think you're punk rock Wait till you hear my cover of 99 Red Balloons, fucker, you know. <laughs> so now it's our turn. That band's done. Go up on stage. Fucking, you know, sing my little heart out, you know. I'll stop the world at Halloween. <laughs> but with a slight British thing, because... The dude who sang it was British, you know. You've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time. Mm -hmm. 
slam dancing, you know, by yourself. You know, it's just you on stage, so you kind of have to... Feeling very, very good about our audition. We're done in 15 minutes, because that's all you get. Pile back into the vans, drive back to New Jersey. Remember looking at Tim over there, you know, while we were playing, and he's just rocking out on the bass. And not, even sure if, not even sure if the bass was plugged in. That's how ineffective he was as a bass player. And we get back to New Jersey, and then we wait. We wait to hear if we've passed the audition. And I don't know, it was never explained to us exactly what we would get if we passed the audition. In my mind, what happens is they call and they say, you passed the audition, you're going on the road with Black Flag tomorrow. Pack accordingly. But they never call. And finally, we, I call them one day and I'm like, hey, we're the pleased. <laughs> I pause, thinking they're gonna go, oh, fuck, yeah, fuck, yeah, we mean, mean to call you. How soon can you get on the road with millions of dead cops? And then say, well, we played at your audition night a couple of weeks ago, and we haven't heard. Did we pass? And it never occurs to me that the guy on the other end is like a 19-year-old, either fucking college dropout or more likely a philosophy major still in college, <laughs> who doesn't know anything about anything, just works the door. It never occurs to me that there is no audition, that they just need people to come in on Mondays when it's slow, and the reason they tell you to bring as many people as you can is so they'll buy drinks and so they'll make a little money on a Monday. That never occurs to me. Because I'm naive. That naive part of me that still believes in Lance Armstrong. So I wait that beat and then I say, you know, we were here, did we pass? And he goes, yeah, you passed. <laughs> Click. <laughs> and at first I'm elated. And I go, guys, we passed. And they're looking at me like, okay, great, well, what's next? And then it slowly dawns on me that we didn't pass anything. And rather than blame myself for my own stupidity and naivete, my thoughts turned to Tim, who was such a shitty bass player that he cost us the audition at CBGB's. Now, we're all seniors. We're all going to go to college. This band is going to end. But we've got the summer ahead of us, we've got our demo tape, and fuck, who knows, you know? Maybe one of the majors will come calling and sign us up, and we won't have to go to college. And so I start conspiring with Jeff and John to kick Tim out of the band. 
Tim, whose, ba whose idea it was to start the band, who is the only legitimate punk among us, I blame him for fucking us up. And finally one day, we sit down with Tim and we say, Tim, you're out of the band. And he can't believe it. He's stunned and he's heartbroken, as he should be. I'm his best friend. <laughs> but this is rock and roll, man, you know. And you gotta win at any cost. Tim is our Pete Best. Tim is our Dave Mustaine. Metallica fans? He's gotta go. He says, fuck you. And he takes his bass, he storms out. We bring in a sophomore who looks like Scooter from the Muppets. But he can play the shit out of that bass. Eight weeks later, I leave for college. We're no longer a band. Kicking Tim out of that band haunted me for years. It was one of the worst things I'd ever done as a human being because there were literally, there was n literally no reason to do it. There were no, there was no chance that anything was ever going to happen with the pleased. But still, I had to fuck up my relationship with this guy who for a brief shining moment in high school made me cool. Years go by. Years go by. Facebook comes along. Who gets in touch with me? Tim. Hey man, what's going on? We should get together. Long time no here. I'm still in Jersey. I feel, you know, terrible. I'm like, yeah, definitely. Let's get together. We get together. We have lunch in the city. Guess what Tim does for a living? He's the lead singer of a rock and roll fucking punk band. Tim, alone among all of us, all of us that I have ever known. And I knew hundreds of punk rockers when I was in high school. Tim, at 37, is doing exactly what Tim was doing at 17. Tim is a fucking punk rocker. He won. Thank you guys very much. All right, uh, my story is about uh, when I was a criminal. And uh, yeah, I was only a criminal once in my life for a long period of time. And uh, 
Really? This is when I was, I was a criminal for uh, about four months. And uh, it was my senior year in college, okay? And I could have graduated in the summer. I, I only needed one class to graduate. But uh, I went to Auburn University, and uh, we're a big football school, and my brothers played football there. I don't give a fuck at all, sir. I don't care. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't open up the floor for a fucking pep rally. I don't give a shit at all. Blow me, fuck you and your team, whoever you're pulling for. I don't give a shit. One goddamn bit. All right, so... Um, that's the danger of saying you're university in the South. Nowhere else on the planet does anyone give a shit. But you say your football team in this state, <laughs> fucking pep rally breaks out in nine seconds. So, and 99% of them didn't go to fucking any of those colleges. They went to Walmart and bought a fucking t-shirt. That's where they went. So, but I digress. I was a senior. I was gonna graduate. I wanted to go back for one more football season. I could have taken the one class during the summer and finished up, but I'm like, no, I'm gonna go home, I'll work, I'll come back, I'll go September, I'll graduate in December, and that'll be it. So, working my summer job with my older brother, he's 12 years older than I am, and uh, I already knew I was only gonna take one class in the fall. I only needed the one class. The one class was Monday and Wednesday, so I only had to go to school two days a week from one to three. I had Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday free to fucking wreak havoc on anything. <laughs> and everything. So, working my summer job with my older brother, he said, God, you're only taking the one class. You ought to do something. I'm like, well, I have my part-time job. And he goes, yeah, but you need to... He goes, I know what you ought to do. Uh, I got a friend of mine who's a bookie. I'll take you to meet him and get him to put you through bookie school. There's no such thing, but we called it that. There's no actual... And so, and then he can teach you how to run a bookmaking operation because the Southern guys, being football crazy as we just exhibited here, Everybody wants to bet. And they're not necessarily all high roller gamblers. Mainly they're guys in a frat. They're frat guys. They're about 50 guys in a frat. They all just want to bet 20 bucks so they can say to their buddy, hey, I picked Clemson or I picked the Cox or I picked Auburn or Alabama, blah, blah, blah. But 50 guys, 20 bucks a head, that's $1,000 on the line. And if there's 30 fraternities at Auburn, that's about 30 grand in play right there. And you're not even dealing with any kind of crazy high-risk gambling. You're only dealing with, like I said, 20 bucks, 40 bucks, things like that. So my brother takes me over to meet his bookie friend, and we go to the guy's house, and he supposedly has won this house from someone else. <laughs> this is how, this is an old school guy that's like been to prison and shit, who's at, like, he's at the wall of TVs, it's like right out of a movie, smoking cigars, there's horse racing, there's boxing, there's high lie, there's cockfighting, there's shit that didn't even before cable. This is like closed circuit, they're piping shit in from the planet Earth. So I spend the afternoon with the guy, and he tells me the whole thing, and he shows me about moving the point spreads, and he basically puts me through bookie school in, in, in an afternoon, and he tells me I can call him if I ever need any help. I, I, I finish my summer job. I go back to college. I call a buddy of mine. He was really big in the frat world. He knew a guy in every frat, and I'm like, instead of having like, you know, 900 guys call us every week, why don't we just put a guy in each frat, and we'll let him collect all the money, and then we'll give him a kickback for whatever he brings us. And that way we'll deal with 20 or 30 people instead of 1,000 people. And my buddy's like, great idea. I'll handle that angle. So off we're rolling, right? So we take our very first round of bets. And within the first week, we realize why Las Vegas is on the map. Everybody loses. Everybody loses. Way more people lose in gambling than win. These casinos wouldn't be billion-dollar properties if everybody was kicking their ass. So within the first week, we make like two grand. We make like $2,000 right off the bat. So this is $1,000 each. And so now I am on my way to being 21 years old with a class two days a week and a grand a week in my pocket. In Auburn, Alabama, you can't fucking spend that. You can't. We tried, believe me, we had a rule. 
we believe that because we were sort of doing something illegal, the ill-gotten gains had to be blown. So we decided to be really flamboyant with the money. So like on my birthday in a restaurant in Auburn, Alabama, there was Don Perignon on the menu and we ordered a bottle and the waitress came back and goes, we don't have it. I'm like, what do you mean it's right there on the menu? She goes, well, you know, I never had it because we're in Auburn. Nobody has this kind of money. Nobody's going to order this. He just wanted to look cool and have it on the menu. No one's ever ordered it. It's never been in stock here. And we're like, well, fuck. <laughs> so, and the, one of the, the main reason we were doing this is because the state law in Alabama at the time, the first time they call you for any kind of gambling ring, it could be a multi-million dollar operation, it could be a $300 operation. It didn't matter. If it was your first offense, $35 misdemeanor fine. <laughs> so there, you're, you're at no risk at all, basically. There's no stop, quit, so it doesn't matter. It's literally a slap on the wrist. So, so we tried to buy the dome, that didn't work. We're taking everybody we know to lunch, we're blowing money. My buddy bought a Rolex, he's 20. He bought a Rolex. He's got a Rolex in Auburn, Alabama. Everybody thinks it's fake, it's fucking real, it's totally real. He had the money, but nobody knew. And so, the one thing that, that sort of that did work with blowing all the cash is, um, we went to a bar, there's one honky-tonk bar in Auburn and, uh, where they play, uh, where you can see a live band. And it's a big place, seats about four or 500 people. And we knew the owner, the guy's name was Mad Dog, and it's called the War Eagle Supper Club. And so we're in the War Eagle Supper Club one night, fat city with cash, as we were. We're about eight, nine weeks into it now. So we're sitting on about 19 or 20 grand. Yeah, in my closet, in a fucking sock, in my closet, <laughs> at Tamarack Apartments in Auburn, Alabama, for anybody. And so. My partner looks at me and he goes, let's do the Old West thing when we're in the honky-tonk. And I'm like, what do you mean the Old West thing? He goes, let's do a round for the house. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, go find Mad Dog. We go find Mad Dog. We're like, Mad Dog, how much do you buy everybody in here a drink? And he's like, God damn, Henley, there's a lot of people. $900. I'm like, fuck, I got that. Bang, 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 bang. Hand him 900 bucks. The band stops. He takes us both on stage and goes, round the drinks on these two fuckers. And rings a bell. Oh yeah, my buddy who had never gotten laid got laid all the time during that fall semester. <laughs> so we're rolling along and we just think we're bulletproof and it's great, we're blowing the money and we're having a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden we get a guy about, about eight or nine weeks in and he wants to play big. Instead of 20, 30 dollars, this guy wants to bet 100 bucks, 500 bucks, he really wants to play. But like I said, we're sitting on 20 grand at this time, so we're like, well let him play, we'll see whatever happens. And over the first couple of weeks, he wins pretty good. He wins a couple thousand dollars. We probably had to pay the guy, but again, everybody else is losing, we don't care. So week three, he decides to go huge. He bets all these games and he just loses his ass. As good as it's gone for him, he's down 2,500. He's lost on the pro games on Sunday. He's gonna do the crazy thing that the gamblers do. He's gonna double up on Monday night football. He's gonna go $2,500 on the Monday night game to try to get back to zero or be down 5,000. All right, so, and, and a lot of money was going on that game. And one of the things I learned in bookie school is when all the money goes somewhere, if it keeps going in this direction, you've got to start moving the points up to get people to bet the other way. So the guy goes, well, it's a nine-point spread. I'm like, yeah, but if you're betting 2,500, I'm going to make it an 11-point spread. And he goes, what's bullshit? I'm like, hey, I'm the fucking bookie. There's no way to talk about this. No, call cops if you don't like it. <laughs> so... It's a 10th game, I move the spread to 11, they lose by 10, I get five grand. He's down five grand, only because I moved the spread. So he didn't want to pay me, and he's really angry. He's like, I'm not paying you, and I'm like, fine, I'll just turn you into my bosses. And it's, there's no bosses, it's just me and the other jackass. <laughs> but he does not know this. I'm like, look, I work for some very evil people in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'll be 
happy to turn over your name and address, and if they come whip your ass, I don't care. I'm just saying, you're not screwing me. It's your own legs you're going to get broken. So, <laughs> so he, uh, he comes over, and he begrudgingly you know, uh, writes me a check for like half of it and tells me I'll be back you know, in a couple of days with the rest of it. So I put the check in the bank. He doesn't come back for a few days. I can't find him. I think he's going home. I call his family. I find out where he's from. I call his house. I've got his mother on the phone. I'm like, uh, your son is in a lot of trouble. And she's like, yeah, we were wondering why he came home in the middle of the week. And I'm like, uh, again, I work for some really ugly, horrible people that like are in jail and hurt people and break legs. And uh, they have your address. They might come to your house. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just saying it's not my fault. Take it up with him. And so he's, he, he's immediately back at school. He brings me the other 2500 uh, I got the money in the bank. It's all good. He's still grousing about the whole thing. He's really upset. I let the checks out of the bank for four or five days to make sure they're going to not bounce, and, and they didn't. I call the bank. I get a clearance. I'm like, I put those checks in like a week ago. They're like, totally fine. I take all the money out because I liked it in my sock with its other cash friends. I did not want that money in the bank. I wanted it in my boot <laughs> where it belonged. So very next day, the bank calls me. They're like, hey, you took that money out too soon. Those checks bounced. And I'm like, what? You just told me yesterday they were clear. They're like, no, no, no. And that's called check kiting, and that's a felony. And you got to bring the money back, or we're sending the law on you. And I'm like, I don't have the money. And they're like, you took it out yesterday. We're in Auburn, Alabama. You can't spend five grand in a day. This is 84. Crack wasn't big yet. So I tell them, I don't have the money. You're going to have to send the law after me. I don't know what's going to happen. I, 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 a friend of mine's an attorney, and he's like, look, once the bank told you that it was okay, the check's cleared, you're fine. Don't worry about it. The guy's just trying to bluff you. He's covering his ass because some bookkeeper made a mistake. And I'm like, fine, whatever. I don't really care. And uh, so I'm sitting, but now I'm really scared. I'm really worried that the cops are going to come get me. I don't know what's going to happen. I got the money. I figure, I just, I just picture a bust with everybody coming in, and they find my sock money, and we're all in jail. And, <laughs> I'm not going to graduate and four years of school and prison and jail and anything that goes bad with that. And uh, so I start thinking, well, God damn it, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll, uh, 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 I'll go into hiding. That's what I'll do. <laughs> I'll go into hiding. So I, I go over and a friend of mine was staying. He had a, he had a mobile home, a trailer. And uh, I go, can I crash with you for a couple of days? And he's like, sure. So the next day after I'd been there one day, I go outside. There's the fucker that owes me the money. He's in the trailer next to me. And he looks at me and he's like, fuck. And I get him and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> and he's, I go, those checks bounce. He goes, I know, goddammit, I wasn't going to pay you. And I'm like, well, somebody's going to whip your ass then. I understand. It may not be me. He goes, and he was bigger than I am. He goes, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm not going to do nothing. I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to wait and see if I'm going to jail. Then if I'm not going to jail, your ass is getting whipped. I don't care. And so I waited out about a week. Nobody came after me. I figured it was all good. The bank, it sort of all blew over. It was fine. Found a friend of mine on the football team uh, who later spent four years playing defensive end for the Green Bay Packers. And uh, I, sent over, I sent him over there to uh, interview our friend that bounced the checks. <laughs> Paid him $300 to hold him by his feet over his balcony and threatened to drop him on his head in the goddamn parking lot. Yeah, that's not the funny part. And, uh, and scared. He's like, are you ever going to really not interview? Are you going to pay your debts? And da, 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 and this, that, and the other. And so... So even though I got the money, after that threat, the guy came back over and gave me, like, here, look, if I give you another $500, would you just not send the large black men to my house to threaten me anymore? And I'm like, fine, I'll do that. You're off the hook. And um, so basically, we just ruined the guy's life for no reason. <laughs> and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really did. I thoroughly had a great time being a crooked goddamn criminal for no reason. And the cherry on top of this little Sunday of a story... Two years go by, and like I said, the kid had to drop out of school that year because his family was angry about him and the money and everything, so he had to sit out a year, he came back. 
Two years later, I was at a football game with my former partner in the bookie business, and we were at a frat party watching the band play, and we see him over on the lawn over here with a date, just enjoying the band. And my buddy, who was in the fraternity at the time, he goes, there he is. Oh, my God, there he is. He goes, we should get his ass whipped. I'm like, dude, it's been two years. Really? He's like, no, fuck that guy. You don't bet if you can't pay. <laughs> so because he was in that frat, he went and found some pledges, some new guys that were pledging the fraternity who have to do whatever the older guys tell them to do. And they're like, go beat the fuck out of that guy over there. And they did. And as he was laying there on the fucking lawn in a heap, me and the other guy walked up and went, how you doing, buddy? Good to see you. And I had never been happier being crooked. That's it. Thanks. This is a group called Battles, featuring uh, Mateus Aguayo here. And we just heard from Vic Henley. You can find him at V-I-C-H-E-N-L-E-Y.com. I heard Vic tell some other stories down there in Charleston at some other shows. And we are definitely going to have him back. He is a funny, funny man. So a lot of people were very thankful for our time in Charleston, most especially Brandy Sullivan and Greg Tavares from Theater 99. They've created a beautiful comedy community down there, and they run one hell of a festival. Just a little reminder here, folks, that one of the ways that you can help Risk out is by going to proflowers.com. Send flowers, a gift, chocolates, a great way to say, hello, I love you, I'm thinking about you, to anyone in your life. Go to proflowers.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and remember to enter the gift code RISK. You'll get a free glass vase with that, or vase. I think they're probably pretty flexible about that. Just a bit, we're going to hear from the always hilarious young comic, Mr. Adam Newman. But before that, we had the delight of meeting this other comedian from down there in the Charleston area. Her name is Sean Kennedy. Find her on Twitter at S-H-O-N Kennedy. And here she is now with a story we call... Legends of the Fall. Hi, guys. Anybody want to guess who has the vagina story? So, uh, I had my first pap smear (laughs) when I was 17 because I was going off to college and I wanted to be on birth control because I heard people had sex in college. And since I had not had any high school, I thought college was definitely gonna happen for me, right? Full disclosure, I didn't actually have sex until I was 23. 
Yeah, see, yeah, that, 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 that little, uh, that's what you get, right? <laughs> 17, 18, good for you. Saving yourself, yeah. <laughs> 1920, you know, you're a little picky, probably focusing on school. That's okay. 2021, maybe she had like a bad sexual experience when she was a child, you know, like whispering stuff. 23, yeah, your friends just think you have Asperger's and you just don't do sex. You know, like my friends just be like, oh yeah, hey, this is Sean, she doesn't have sex. Kind of, sort of standing right here. I'm just saying. So I insisted on a female gynecologist because they know what's going on down there, you know, and that's cool. And until I reached the uh, world's most enthusiastic female gynecologist. I call her Vagina Sunshine. Like, she was just <laughs> absolutely amazing. She's like, okay, I'm going to let you know everything that down here, so you'll be a little tense. I'm just gonna need you to calm down. Nothing to be afraid of. I've done this a million times. Okay, lubricant's gonna be a little cold. Okay, all right. So we do the lube. Told ya. <laughs> so she's gonna step by step. Okay, well everything looks good down here. Good. Not a lot of hair down there. Good. Good. Okay. Everything's nice and pink and okay and goes Mr. Speculum. <gasps> Look at that cervix. What a nice and cute cervix I have ever seen. It's like a pink little donut. It's perfect. Do you want to see it? No. Not even a little bit. I want to get off this fucking table, you know? So she's like, I'll go get a mirror. So she's gone for like two minutes, which is like nine days when you're like, like you can't fucking move, you know? And she comes back to this mirror and she's like, see? Isn't that a cute little cervix? And I'm looking at the cervix and it's pink and it looks like a donut and I'm like, that's cute. And I'm looking at everything else and I'm like, that is a fucking disaster. Okay, like what is all, ew, how, oh no. Like to this day, I can't watch porn with black women. Oh, mm-mm. That just shouldn't be happening down there. Anyway, so I said, okay, I was talking to my friend Stacy, and I was like, ugh, I got my appointment, you know, whatever, it's coming up. I insisted on a male doctor who was just like in, out, you know, really formal. And my friend Stacy's like, why do you hate going? There's nothing wrong with you. You know, like, you didn't have cauliflower growing down there and shit. You're just going in for your, like, you know, your, your yearly appointment because you have to go. And I was like, huh, I didn't think about that. And she's like, two weeks ago, we had a lady who came in with the worst case of herpes we have ever seen. You know, and she sits on the table, opens her legs, like, I thought it was a reaction to my fabric softener. <laughs> Are you using uranium for your fabric softener? 
So I go in and I see my male doctor and you know, his nurse comes in, she's like this middle-aged black woman, you know, really thick Charleston accent, she's kind of bigger, she's really nice. Doctor comes in, he's all business. I'm like, sweet, you know. And the first thing he said to me was, um, you know, we're doing the exam and he goes, has your right breast always been that much larger than your left? <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, I hope this shit didn't happen in the elevator. Like, I'm not sure, <laughs> you know? Like, I didn't measure them as they were growing, you know? But thanks, now I think I have a gigantic fucking tumor. But, you know, good, good for you, you know? So we do the exam, he's all business, and we're done. Sweet, no problems. And he says, stand up. And I was like, well, that seems a little weird, but you know, I didn't go to medical school. I was gonna fall out, right? So I go to stand up. Turns out what he said was slide up. <laughs> like slide back up on the table. <laughs> yeah. So, you know that thing that you step up on when you get up on the table? That wasn't there. Because that's where he was. So I stand up, or I go to stand up, and I'm falling. And I have that feeling like I'm fucking falling, you know? And I'm like, ah! Oh. By the way, if you're ever falling, I don't know why they do this in movies. This does nothing to help you, okay? It just makes you look stupid while you're falling, okay? And so he looks up and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? He didn't say that, but that's what he looked like he said. And I'm like still falling, so I am screaming. I'm like, ah! And so I fall on him because he's the closest, you know, and I got, I know, this is hot. I cried for two days, anyway. So like, I'm naked from here down. I got on that funny looking jacket that only comes to right here, you know? And I'm falling and I hit him in the head and this boob, like the big one, was like, like hit him in the mouth and he's like, you know? So I still don't feel the floor, okay? Like I am still on him. And he's like trying to push me, I guess. And I'm like, ow, cause it hurt. So I was like, wait, 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 there's a nurse in here. You know, so I look over at the nurse to like help me. This bitch is cracking the fuck up. Like she's like, oh my God. So a good Samaritan nurse hears the commotion. And I actually just thought about this on the way here. Before she came in, she knocked on the door. <laughs> and I was like, if I heard that shit, I would walk in, right? I wouldn't go, come in. What's all this screaming about, you know? I was like, really? So she comes in and all she sees is me with my boob in the doctor's mouth, right? This bitch like bent over in the corner like I had neutralized her, you know, so I could have my way with the doctor, right? <laughs> this bitch is like, like, I'm a generously portioned woman. I get that, okay? This bitch grabbed me and slammed me back on the table like I was fucking olive oil, okay? So now I'm screaming like, get off me! 
And she's screaming like, what's going on? And the doctor's like, everybody calm down. Everybody calm down. And this bitch is still cracking the fuck up. I'm in the Nuva ring, and um, yeah, that doesn't work. But I saw the nurse on my way out, and I was like, uh, hey, just, uh, why didn't you try to help me? When I was following, remember that whole thing? Yeah, why not you try to help me? And she goes, What? <laughs> girl, that thing has been so funny to me. I wish you had seen it. Look how they've been thinking about my girlfriend and tell her she is going to lose her mind because he don't like him going to touch him anyway. Oh, Lord Jesus, this is going to be so funny. <laughs> Do you fucking work here? <laughs> because it sounds like you should be taking my order. I'm just... You know, so that's my story, guys. Have a good rest of your lives. Get up, stand up. My story is uh, about the first uh, online date I ever had. Have any of you ever done any online dating before? Yeah. <laughs> All right, shy about it. One guy, that's, that's why a lot of girls don't do it, because that's, that's who's on it. Woo, guy, that's who's on. Then that's all he brings to the conversation. I got out of a three-year relationship, and I, I just, the whole time I was in the relationship, I've always been fascinated by online dating. I've always wanted to try it. Uh, there's something amazing to me about basically creeping a profile, like stalking a profile. This, I don't mean for this to sound so creepy, but it is. You're, if you did this on Facebook, it's creepy. But something about a dating website, you look at girls' pictures, you message them, and you're like, hey, do you want to hang out sometime? And then they're in front of you with a drink at a bar. It's some, and you know what else it does? It eliminates the games of dating. You don't have to worry about going to a girl in a bar and asking for their number or flirting and coming across as creepy. It eliminates that whole process. And the other part about it that's great is you both know you're on the date. How many dates have you been on where one of you thinks you're on a date and the other one isn't sure if you're on a date? I was tired of that, so I was excited to... The, turns out both of you knowing you're on the date is pretty crucial to getting laid. <laughs> and so I was excited to do the online dating and I made a profile and a lot of guys I talked to, guys and girls I talked to said that guys have a lot harder time on the online dating because there's so many creepy guys on it. Girls are just bombarded with messages and whenever they do go out with guys, it's boring conversation and, and, uh, and the, their profiles are trying too hard. Um, I started getting messages immediately, and I'll tell you the secret, uh, guys, if you want to know how to get 
girls to message you on your online dating profile is uh, I made my profile picture me with a horse. <laughs> That's it. If you have a good picture with you and a horse, you're golden. Girls love ho- Every message I got was, oh, you love, ho- I love horses. <laughs> and so I started getting messages pretty immediately. And the first date I went on, a girl messaged me and she was, uh, I'm 30, I, I was 28 at the time and she was 22. Uh, which is almost, it's barely cool. It's like, it's, it's fine. Uh, it's, it's not illegal, it's not... It's okay, and... Uh, I was just out of a three-year thing. We're just looking for, looking for fun, and uh, at 22, hopefully she's looking for fun, too. But she messaged me, and she was uh, really, really cute. She looked like a little uh, Natalie Portman, which is... Uh, if you're into the, the Jewy look, that's, it, was, it was nice. Long hair, long hair, Natalie Portman. I, I want to paint a specific picture for you. But she was really cute, and she wanted to meet at a bar in, uh, in, in her neighborhood. And so we met, uh, we met at a bar in her neighborhood, and we, started, uh, we just started drinking. And we were drinking... A lot, and conversation was—I don't remember—it was fine, but we were just getting, we were just getting very drunk, and it's important to know that we were getting very drunk, and uh, we were drinking until maybe from 10 p.m. till about 2 a.m., which is when we were just like kicked out of the bar because that was the end of the time that you were allowed to be in the bar <laughs> drinking, and so we just started wandering basically on the street, and we're in downtown Brooklyn, by the way. Um, and there's safe parts of Brooklyn, but this is downtown Brooklyn, which is not the best area. I, the only thing I... Re- it was very fuzzy, but I remember passing the... Uh, there's like a very big free STD clinic in, uh, in Brooklyn, and it opens at like 7 or 8 in the morning. And so may- like 2 or 3 in the morning is when people start lining up because it's, <laughs> it's first come, first served. <laughs> Pardon the, uh, the, the cum pun in there, but uh, first... You get it. All right. Uh, I got myself, surprised myself with that one. Um, but so I remember seeing them lining up and being like, this isn't, a good, this isn't a good sign. And we're walking past there and it's kind of dangerous and there's no other bars to go to, but we're still walking and talking. And then she started holding my hand. She just grabbed my hand. And I was like, oh, that's a good sign. We're in a good place there. And so I just blurted out, want to come back to my place. Want to come back to my place, right? <laughs> And she goes, I can't go back to your place. And I was like, ah, fuck. And she's like, no, I have a, I have a cat. And he, uh, I can't leave. He pees on everything. <laughs> so, okay. so we have to go back to my place. And I was like, oh, r- all right. So we're going to go back to her place. This guy, the place has probably cat pee all over it, but it's, this is pretty good. I'll, first online date, I'll take what I can get. This, is, this isn't bad. And so we go back to her place, and I don't I even see the cat, and uh, we start hooking up immediately. And uh, I'm like, this is one for one on the online dating. I'm thrilled about this. <laughs> and we're hooking up for like, we're hooking up for a long time. Like it's lasting a very long time, which is completely not me bragging, it's because we've drank so much, things aren't, aren't working. Um, they're working, but they're not finishing working, right? 
they just, they basically, they, it just, they just keep working, is what things are, are doing. And we're hooking up for like a long time until uh, she threw up, okay? And she threw up on my penis, is where she did it. Uh, have you ever done that before? Has she? <laughs> she's giving me the. She's. I'm not. I'm not embarrassed to talk about it. I'm in front of a. All right. Um, she threw up on my penis, and then she goes. She leaves the room. She goes to the bathroom to go clean up, and threw me a hand towel, which is not enough. And while she's gone, the cat comes into the room. No, it's not, it's not. And jumps up on the bed and is like rubbing up on me and stuff, right? He's got no tail, by the way, which is weird. I don't know if that has anything to do with why it pees everywhere, but it's got no tail. And so I'm just sitting on the bed, like, I sobered up quickly when I got thrown up on. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, the internet is awesome, right? And I'm sitting there d naked, sober now, with a cat rubbing on me. And I hear the door to the apartment open and she has a, her roommate got home. And I can, I can hear them outside. She go, I hear the roommate go, how'd the date go? And she goes, it's still going on. And then she pointed to the room and the door's like cracked open. So her roommate just looks in. It's just me naked with a tailless cat <laughs> waving. And so she came back in the room after she cleaned up. And here's the thing. Uh, she finished the job. No, no. Applause. Applause. Yeah. You kidding me? Aw, oh, what a trooper. What a trooper. The last thing I... When I throw up... You know how horrible you feel when you throw up? When I throw up, all I want is ginger ale in fetal position. The last thing I want to do after I throw up is put a dick back in my mouth. <laughs> if you eat half a pizza and throw up, the last thing you want is the other half of that pizza. <laughs> and she ate the other half of that pizza. And here's the thing, when you, I need the guys on my side for this one because it's gonna be weird and there's girls here. Um, when you're a guy and you first hear gagging. That's a great, that's a great feeling. That is an ego boost. And also that's what girls do in porn, right? You watch girls in porn gagging on cocks and stuff and you're like, oh man, I wish a girl would gag on me. And now there is a girl gagging on you and you're like, yeah. Well, you're not like, yeah, in the moment, but it's weird to do that in the moment, but you're excited about it. And you're excited until you're covered in like six already drank vodka cranberry juices. <laughs> but at first, before you realize what it is, it's just like this warm gush, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, what's that? That feels pretty good. I like that. What is that? No one's ever done that. <laughs> you're like two on board with this. But then you realize what happened and you quickly are like, oh no, I hope I'm not into that. That's a totally different, that's a different problem. 
I don't want that to be my thing, my fetish. You can find it if that's what you're looking for. You can find, that's what Craigslist was invented for. But if that's what you're looking for, you're gonna sacrifice something. Like, you're not gonna find a pretty girl who's into that. You're gonna find, like, a troll girl. <laughs> She's short. She's a short troll girl. And you're gonna have to introduce her to your friends and family for the rest of your life, is this is my girlfriend. I know she's ugly, but she likes throwing up on my cock, and that is what I'm into, Dad. That's what I'm into. And uh, so I spent the night, <laughs> by the way. I stayed over. Uh, because part of me was like, after we were done, I was like, I should probably leave. But when you're a guy and you finish, you just go to sleep. And so that's what I did. And the next morning, she was pretty cool about it. We laughed about it a good bit. And she goes, you're either never going to call me again or we are getting married. That's what she said to me. And I will tell we went out a few more times. And she was nice, but it didn't, it didn't work out. And part of me wishes that was the girl that I married. Part of me wishes that was a girl I ended up with because what a great first date story, you know? What a great first date to base a whole life together on. I wish we got married. I wish one day I could tell this story and be able to end it with, and that's how I met your mom. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll finish on... <laughs> that's, not a, that's another one. I'm sorry. That's another one. A lot of... Uh, a lot of come and jizz stuff. And that's what, that's what this is about. I did an earlier version of this story, and I put it up on YouTube, and um, my dad called me. And my dad's very supportive, and he goes, he goes, I watched one of your videos online, and I liked it, but what's jizz? Okay? <laughs> in an earlier version, I used the word uh, jizz in there. And um, he goes, I asked, I talked to your mother, and neither of us know what jizz is. <laughs> I said, I can't have this. I can't have this conversation with you. And he goes, it's a, is it snot? It's snot, right? And I was like, close, but it's not, it's not snot. And my dad goes, is it cum? It's cum, isn't it? And I had to say, uh, yes, dad. Jizz is cum. Is a sentence I said to my dad. And my dad goes, oh, I shouldn't have shown everybody at work. <laughs> All right. You guys have a great show still ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. McPherson behind me now, and that was Adam Newman with a story we call 
Such sweet chunder. Don't forget our big shows coming up in San Francisco and in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out where our live shows are happening next. And remember, we are listener-supported, folks. We really need your help to keep this whole thing going. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to make a one-time donation or to become a member of our fabulous network of podcasts. MaximumFun.org. And stay tuned, folks, because we have some super exciting stuff coming from both Risk and the StoryStudio.org. We've got our new All-Star episode coming up, and we've got our new Storytelling for Business video lecture series. Anyone who has a career is going to want our new video lecture course, Storytelling for Business. The exercises included are practically foolproof. You will have fully fleshed out fantastic stories when you're finished. And stay tuned because it will be available soon. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Easter egg. Oh, I should have known I'd run into you on the back end of things.